Hello, and welcome to the Retirement Revised Podcast. I'm your host, Mark Miller. I write on retirement and aging for the New York Times, Reuters, and other publications, and I publish this podcast alongside my Substack newsletter. You can sign up for the newsletter at my website, retirementrevised.com. Also visit the site to learn about my current book, Retirement Reboot, Common Sense Financial Strategies for Getting Back on Track. I've been busy this spring promoting the book, and this is the first new podcast since that series that I produced on key themes of Retirement Reboot back in January and February. If you missed any of those, I'll provide a link in the newsletter this week. But I wanted to break my radio silence this week with a special guest. Jill Schlesinger reports on personal finance for CBS television and radio, and she's the host of the very popular radio show Jill on Money. Jill has a new book out called The Great Money Reset, Change Your Work, Change Your Wealth, Change Your Life. I interviewed her for a recent New York Times story about the financial ins and outs of starting a business later in life. That story was about how solo entrepreneurship can improve your retirement by helping you delay a social security claim and saving and investing. Those strategies are a central theme of Retirement Reboot. I'll provide a link to the article in the newsletter in case you missed it. Jill offered some wonderful insights for that article about how to engineer a transition like this from a financial standpoint. But her book goes much wider than that. It's really about how millions of Americans are rethinking how they want to live and set their priorities in the wake of the pandemic. So I wanted to have another talk with Jill for the podcast. We talked about some of the transitions that have been meaningful in Jill's own life, And I made sure to get some good financial tips from her that I hope you'll find helpful. I'll be back with more podcast episodes later in the summer, and the newsletter will be arriving in your inbox periodically between now and Labor Day. Meanwhile, I hope you enjoy my conversation with Jill Schlesinger. Jill Schlesinger, welcome back to the program. Oh, it's so great to be with you. Thank you so much. So this is your second book. You are clearly into self-punishment. Um, it's just, I know from my own experience, it's a lot of work. So what was the inspiration? What what made you decide you wanted to write this? Well, you know, it's interesting because um, I think that I've been in the business sort of financial world for almost three decades, maybe a little bit more if you count my years of trading. Um, and I think that oftentimes we are, come to um, inflection points in our lives and we make big decisions that have some financial aspects to them. And this idea of people coming to these inflection points came to a head amid the pandemic. And I was doing a daily podcast and I kept getting these questions from people. And, you know, if I had to like break it down, it was literally that people were like, I just don't know if I want to keep living like this anymore. Mm -hmm. And that to me was really interesting because they were sort of trying to make a personal transition, calling me to get permission to make sure that they weren't blowing up their financial lives. And, you know, I started to think of this as this um, a money reset, that it was a way to sort of say, I've got money or I've got a career or I went in one direction, I want to go in another. And I was helping people have a framework to make these decisions. Right. And I think you know, that's one of the things I thought was really interesting with the book is that I've written a bunch about these transitions that people make sort of from the, well, 
what inspires the change, you know, sometimes this traumatic life event can be a factor. And clearly the pandemic was that in a, in a sort of a mass way for, for all of us. Right. And so some people come out of that going, I want to make these changes, but then kind of how do you navigate it? And you, you touched on this for a second that some of this, I think does look link back to your own story in terms of how you went from being, you know, a financial planner and advisor and then transitioning into your, your life as a broadcaster and journalist. Tell, tell us a little bit about that. I think uh, listeners would be interested to hear that story. So someone just reminded me recently that um, this was actually my second big transition, which is a, a fond way of saying that my friends and family say that if you ever wrote Jill's address down or information in pen, that was a bad decision. So um, my first transition. <laughs> and, and by um, the way, and, I'm the same. My, my resume is like a checkerboard. Oh, goodness, right? Like, don't, don't, you know, like, get ready to keep that doesn't, updated. Doesn't make any um, sense so, to anybody but me. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, um, well, my first transition just quickly was that I was a trader on the floor of the Commodities Exchange in New York City, and I was trying to kind of follow my father's footsteps to be an options trader. I did it for three, four, I think maybe five years when I was all said and done. And I was like, oh, I don't really like this. And it was kind of hard to say to my father, oh, maybe I'm not going to follow in your footsteps. And he was really cool. He was just like, in many ways, was able to look at me and say, you know, there are reasons why I chose this profession. I've got the reasons, you know, I didn't want to be a corporate animal like my like my father, my grandfather was a big corporate guy. And so he said, if you don't, you know, if you can't find happiness doing this, you really have to just love the big wins that you have. And you have to have camaraderie with the folks on the floor. And if that doesn't jazz you, then do something else. And so the something else was that I ended up uh, becoming a certified financial planner and providing financial planning and investment management. I did that for 14 years. I owned a company up in New England. And you know, it was a really good run. And one of the ways that we attracted business was we had a call-in radio show, early podcast. Um, and, uh, and, and because I was in a, a sort of a tertiary city, once you're on the radio, you become sort of the kind of person who appears on the local television affiliates of the big broadcasters. And in my case, I was on a station that was an NBC affiliate. That led to being guests on CNBC. That led to being a guest on CNN and Fox and Fox Business. And so I did a lot of that kind of media work. So I had sold my company and I was kind of thinking, huh, what am I going to do next? And I didn't really understand like, what was, was I just going to go to another financial planning firm? That didn't, I was kind of fried on that business. And of, you know, I was talking to a friend of mine, my dear friend, Maureen Guthman, and she's like, well, what do you love doing? I said, you know, I really love this TV and radio stuff. She goes, well, maybe you should start thinking about how you could do that full time. And I was like, nah. And she says, you know, you need a pink binder. And um, in, in Maureen's world, you know, I'm a very analog person in many ways. So I like, I'm a, you know, I'm tactile. So, you know, get a three ring binder. Hers was pink. She gave me a pink binder. She said, let's make tabs. The tabs are going to be sort of the money that you need to spend to get you through this transition. The next tab is going to be the every single person you know in radio and who do you know in TV and who do you know in publishing. And you're just going to write these things down and you're going to interview people. You're going to fill this up and you're going to come up with sort of your your three case scenarios, you know, your plan A, your plan B and your plan C. And I did that and I really was 
surprised how much it helped me focus what I was doing, that every day I could wake up and say, which tab am I going to deal with today? Who am I going to talk to? Here are my notes. And you really start to um, find what's gaining some traction. So for me, plan, I, I don't, you know, listen, I'm a trader. So I always look at the worst case scenario first. So, you know, A, B, and C, C being the worst, I said, okay, it was, remember, the beginning of 2009, it was the world was falling apart. It was a global recession. I said, well, if the world goes to pot, I'll always be able to sell something. I could sell software. I could sell cars. I'll, I know how to sell. I know how to do that. Best case scenario is uh, some company hires me and says, you know, we want you to do financial stuff. I thought that was a very remote possibility. And I thought that the most likely scenario would be that I would work in a financial planning firm, maybe doing some of like their marketing and their communications, maybe a little bit of client work, but not too much. And I would figure out how to kind of go forward from there. And I gave myself a specific time frame. I talked to my girlfriend who was very enthusiastic because she said that I was miserable being a financial planner. And, you know, we sort of said, pinky swear, let's do this, give this a year and see where I am. And that's what I did. And so what ended up happening was I was early in the search and gathering up all the information. And in the spring of 2009, just a couple months after I had left my firm, I was contacted by someone at CBS News because I had been on their air trying to explain the financial crisis to the masses. And they said, we'd really like to bring you in. Maybe you could join us. And I said, oh, well, that sounds good, but I'm really exhausted. I've owned a company for 14 years. I work seven days a week. I'm not going to do anything until after the summer. And they said, just come in. And I signed a contract three weeks later. So in the beginning of April of 2009, I started with CBS News and I've been there ever since. Mm, yeah. And so some of the I think the knowledge that informs your book, some of it comes from that experience. I think, as you mentioned, a lot of it comes also just from interacting with listeners to your to your show, or maybe who maybe people who write questions into you for your column. But um, let, let's spend a little time now focusing in on sort of the different kind of nuts and bolts aspects of how you manage the money side of of these life transitions. For this this piece that you and I spoke about that I recently did for the Sunday New York Times looked at one aspect of this, which is people who want to sort of go into business for themselves, which could be people who start uh, doing work in the field they've always been in, or they branch out into something new. You know, your story sounds like a little bit of both, frankly, right? You leveraged yeah. the, the knowledge you had from your, your work in the financial services world, but then, you know, flipped that on its head and and became a, a communicator in that field. So it's a little different and it's a little the same, but talk a little bit about how people should lay out that, that three wing binder, if you will, on the financial side. I think one of the comments you've made to me is that it's really important to do that if possible, while you're still in the first job, you know, you try to get a handle and lay out a plan while you're still working. Is that right? Absolutely. I am um, a planner by nature. And I always have, you know, something operating in the background, you know, so I, I like doing this when you're sort of, um, I, I will say stable, it doesn't have to be secure, stable, because I feel like nobody feels particularly secure right now. Right. And so you look at where you are today. And then by doing that, we're, we're really using this as a way to make a big step and to take meaningful action without really putting you at huge risk. So the first aspect is like, basically, we're asking people to create a balance sheet, which is a very fancy way of saying just look, list what you own. Okay, very easy. 
And, you know, when you look at your resources and what you own, and you are also employed, I would also say part of your resources is look at this salary that you're earning. That's one aspect of a resource, but look at the benefits you receive. And it, it is always amazing to people who leave a, in a big job or a, a, a job with a large employer when they see what it is they've been getting that they never felt like cost them like really, oh, that's not that much. You know, they gave me a match on my 401k, big deal. Oh, so what? They gave me disability insurance. Then you go out and try to replace it yourself. Right. And you see that that is actually quite valuable. So, you know, what you own, your income, you look at what you owe, your liabilities, and you take a hard look at what you're spending. And I think the other aspect of kind of looking at where you are in your financial life is asking yourself some questions about housing. Like, hey, I just went through a, like for today, I think you have so much more knowledge. I've just gone through this insane period called a pandemic. I now know what my house is or is not for me, what is good or not for me. And I also think that it is a, a real, I think the pandemic was a real lesson in prioritization. I think that there are some people who may have gone through the pan, pre-pandemic period and been like, I live 3,000 miles away from my, from my family, big deal. And then it's like, wait, it is actually a pretty big deal. And maybe my house, which I love so much, you know, in one coast is not so valuable to me anymore because I need to be near my aging parents. And maybe it's something that I've sort of created some mythology about this thing called a house. But actually, the thing that that house provides is opportunity and ability to maybe start my own business. You know, so these are the things for me that come into this conversation about you know, hey, let me look at my finances and you look at your resources and your liabilities and your housing and your spending. And and also, you know, I, I say other obligations, meaning what have you told your spouse or your kids that you're going to do that that a reset might impact? I might have said to my kids, I'm going to pay for your private university education. But if I if I go into a different direction, Maybe I can't do that. And do I want to go back on that? Do I want to go kind of renegotiate that obligation? And I'm not saying you shouldn't, but I do think you have to bring it to the fore and at least acknowledge that you have may have made some promises to somebody who's close to you that would be impacted by you going into a different direction. Yeah, so interesting. Let's let's talk a little bit more about housing. I think your comment about housing a minute ago is really interesting and we've chatted about this a little bit before too and i think your perspective if i get it right is that people sort of become a little bit too emotionally attached or invested in 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 the house rather than thinking about it a little more objectively which i i find interesting and and i think true and i think i think about this a lot with respect to <clears throat> retirement you know sort of my area because you know, you see these surveys over and over again that say people say they want to age in place. They want to age in place. And it's a little fuzzy what that exactly means. I think a lot of people think it means they want to stay exactly in the house they're in. Although mm -hmm. I think some of the people who study this say it's actually a little different than that. It means age in community, maybe not in the same specific house. But either, either way, it's like reflects this really strong emotional grip that the home seems to have on people but i think you 
think that it's would be smart for people to loosen that grip a bit. I absolutely, you know, I wrote about this in my first book and I used my mother as an example that my mother, I don't think ever lived in an apartment for more than eight months of her entire life. You know, grew up in her parents' house, met my dad, got married, they lived in an apartment for eight months and then they bought something, you know, and it was, you know, because it's the early sixties and that's what you do. And then when my father died, which is uh, almost 10 years ago, you know, here's a woman in her seventies with, you know, a house that she really didn't want to maintain. And she was thinking about selling it. And then I remember looking at condos with her and uh, my sisters looked at me and she goes, maybe mom should rent. And my mother, like the, the blood went out of her face, rent. What, what, why would I rent? And we said, well, you know, maybe let's just, you know, it's a big decision. You're going to tie up a lot of your money and there could be something kind of nice about turning the key and not worrying about anything. And, you know, 10 years later, my mother is truly the happiest renter out there. And I really thought about this a lot during the pandemic where people were watching the, the value of their homes balloon and not just these people who were either the greatest generation or like the earliest baby, like people who had bought homes maybe even 15 years ago and the, the values of these homes were going up and up and up. And what I saw in that was opportunity. And I think other people might have seen as, you know, well, it's nice, but how am I going to, yeah, I got to live somewhere. And I, I got a call from a couple in Pittsburgh and um, they were really kind of interesting. She was a nurse and he's a physical therapist and they were really kind of fried in their careers, sort of late fifties. And um, they, they had felt like they were working so hard and not just to keep up the house, but they had absorbed their adult children's college loans. They had their own debt. And it was a, a sort of a treadmill. They were kind of like <sighs> trying to get to like this finish point, which was probably 10 years in the future. And they were just working tons and tons of overtime just to do that. And Pam's in the operating room one day and the doctor says, hey, you know, oh my God, can you believe the real estate market? And she wasn't really paying attention. This was like height of COVID. And she's like, really? He says, yeah, you should have a realtor come over check it out and the realtor comes over and they say well you know you can get any an enormous amount of money for this house that they had never even considered was possible and they were literally saying to themselves sell the house out of the debt out of the grind and maybe we can actually work longer more years but not for as many hours every single week they put their home on the market. Um, they paid off all their debt. They got into a long-term Airbnb. They literally sold the house as is with all of their furniture. And it was so funny. I, I said that like, you sold your house with nowhere to go. Uh, yeah, they did. Um, and they actually just paid everything off and are so happy because they, from their point of view, the equity that built up in their home, they didn't have anything to do with it. They just happened to be there, but it allowed them to become unburdened. I think that we may not actually appreciate how much that burden weighs on us until it is unburdened, until that you feel like, oh, I'm done with that. And I don't think that they have any intention of retiring, whereas before they were both saying like, okay, 62, five, maybe 60, you know, no way to 67. 
you know, and I, when I talk to her now, she's like, yeah, I, I could do this till I'm 70 because I'm not working 60 hours a week. I'm working 30 hours a week and I'm so happy. Right. So that kind of, you know, getting yourself free from being yoked to a particular, let's say, financial model could be a really powerful way to kind of rebalance things. It's like, it reminds me a little bit of this is sort of the, one of the core themes, I think, of the the FIRE movement, the you know financial mm. independence, retire early movement, which I think a, a lot of people sort of dump on because they say, well, who can, who can finance a 50-year retirement? But I think really what the FIRE movement is saying is something different. They're not really saying retire at 30 and never work another day. It's more what you just said. It's like people who are sort of re-engineering the financial structure of their lives to create better balance and freedom and you know, happiness in their lives, I think, is what most of these people really aren't retired, literally. They've moved yeah. on to something that they like better, and maybe they don't have to work as hard. And, you know, I also think that, you know, when when we talked about this for your article, you know, I know that there are a lot of people who may think, well, you know, I just have to keep working the way I'm working, mm -hmm. because I have all of these obligations. And I think, wow, like, if you could unburden yourself a little bit, that might give you, you might give yourself permission to pursue something great. That's something you could do for a lot longer. And you know, you know me, Mark, I'm, I'm the woman who always hears from people and they're like, I'm retiring, I'm 59. I'm like, what are you gonna do for the rest of your life? And I, I mean, you're totally entitled to do whatever you wanna do, but you know, 30 years of not doing anything is a long time and you can be as, you know, the greatest person and be philanthropic and do that. But I do believe there are so many people who have a desire to do something different. They're a little scared. They kind of say, oh, I, I can't do this because I have all these that, you know, I got to pay for the mortgage and I have to, I mean, for all I know, you could just wipe out half the stuff you were spending on that you never missed during COVID. And maybe you can do something really different. Yeah, but at the same time, I think that, it, well, as you said, I think it's, it is a highly personal decision. But, you know, I think for people who maybe don't necessarily need to keep working for income, I think there's still the question of what do you do with your time and maybe looking at that fact that you don't need to work for income as something that's very liberating because you can yeah. now do, quote unquote, work, but not for pay, but just whatever it is that, that floats your boat. And like, maybe there's something like, I, I remember talking to a guy and, you know, he is a huge professional tennis fan. And he said, you know, that there's like a subculture of people who go work these tournaments, not the, mm -hmm. the grant, you know, the big ones, but these smaller tournaments around. He says, I'm just going to go work at these tournaments and like go watch great tennis and hang out. But like, I want to do something. And even if it seems silly to everyone around me who thinks that I'm giving up this big six figure job, he said, you know, I'm just, I'm just want to do something different. I want to like expand myself in different ways. And I don't know where it's going to lead. And, you know, listen, it's scary. I get it. You know, as somebody who has done this before, it, you don't know where you're going to land and it can be a bit, little bit off-putting. But especially if you're someone who has been thinking, I'm, I'm just not satisfied or I feel really kind of down and gosh, I make a bunch of money and it doesn't feel like it's satisfying to me because I've got all these other burdens that I'm carrying, that if there's a way to go in a different direction and just 
you know, have a little more balance and have a little more joy in your life, I think you can sustain these things for a lot longer. And it's an exciting thing to watch from the sidelines. For me, it's been fun to hear back from people who've gone through this. Right. I mean, the, the emotional side of this is probably the more complicated challenge in some ways. Well, for some people anyway, than the financial side. Absolutely. Because, you know, I'm sure that you've encountered so many people like this in your life where, you know, there are many people who define themselves in a career. You know, right. I am a principal. That's what I do. I am a principal. I don't know how to be anything else. I am a lawyer or I am a doctor. And I think that um, there's a, a an anchoring that that profession can give you. And there are a lot of people who feel really kind of rotten if they don't have that anchor. It's always like the funny thing to me. I'll, I'll, I'll see that somebody I know has retired who's very successful. And you say, oh, they, they went and go, went to someplace else, you know, and you know, well, it can't be the money. It must be this emotional feeling of being untethered without this thing called my career or my job to shape me. Well, and, what, I think what, you know, what it's missing is a sense of purpose of what is that's getting you out of bed in the morning. And that's a critical thing. I have a chapter in my book all about purpose and retirement. And I've, in every book I've written, I write about this because I think it's so important that it be there. And if you can't figure one out that's different than that career A, you got to be living in a cave somewhere. Yeah. I mean, with the condition, condition that our world's in, that you can't look around and pick something that you're passionate about and work on it. And that, Absolutely. You know, that's, a le that's a legacy and that's a purpose. Yeah. And, and, you know, I have to be honest that when, when people, I, I think it's sort of sad when people are in that place, I try yeah. not to judge it, but I'm like, come on, dude, you can do it. Like right. you really can. And that's what I mean about like, you want to give someone permission, but you're right. There's a part of this that's emotionally quite difficult. And, um, and I understand that, you know, I really do, but it is, it is, um, it is my job. I hope to help people at least ask themselves the questions. Any other, um, before we wrap up, any other financial aspects of this that you want that we should be talking to listeners about that people need to watch out for as they make these transitions, these resets? You know, I, I, I touched a little bit and I talked about spending, but I think there's something really been very strange over the last um, few years. And that is um, we have this moment where we are many of us, I shouldn't say everybody, but you know, you're forced in your home, you're scared, you're worried about your physical health. And I remember how much people were like, I can't, I can't spend money on anything. I mean, how many rolls of, of uh, bounty can I buy? Right. And <laughs> a lot, <laughs> I guess, uh, you know, I'm going to buy 62 and people still working their way through that inventory. Um, but you know, and so it was just a strange thing where you felt like I now have a real understanding of what is a need and what is a want, mm. okay? And I think that the nature of the pandemic was sort of like distorted so much around that because on one hand, you know, if you think about the summer of 2020 or the fall of 2020, it was really pretty scary still. Right. And you think about, I don't need to have my kid have a soccer coach or I don't need to go out to dinner all the time and you shift things around and then you accept it. But then you're like, you have this pent up urge to spend. And I get that. Like you come out of the pandemic and you want to spend some. 
And I'm kind of waiting for us to go a little bit back to, um, you know, kind of have a regression to the mean, not the pre-pandemic spending, not the post-pandemic spending, maybe not the worst of the pandemic where you're really spending nothing but something else. And I'd love for people to say, like, what is the thing that I really didn't spend money on during the pandemic that I just don't miss? And can mm -hmm. I kind of look at that as a, a way to capture um, some habits going forward? You know, I tell the story in the book and it's, and it's very funny that I, uh, I think it was the end of 2020 or beginning of 21, I sent my CPA, all of my tax stuff. No, ladies and gentlemen, I do not do my own taxes. That is a professional's job, not mine. And, um, and he set, called me up. He goes, I think there's something wrong on your spreadsheet because, you know, your uh, wardrobe budget is, I think, did you forget a zero? I said, no, that's the number. And he <laughs> said, are you kidding me? <laughs> <laughs> and I can tell you the God's honest truth, Mark, as someone who is on television quite a bit, I cannot spend in the same way. I will not, I will not go back to pre-pandemic ever. I just will not because it just does not matter. And I was like, oh, yeah. it really doesn't matter. And there are things like that, little pieces that you can extrapolate and bring into your life today. I, I think people discount how much control they do have over their spending and don't wanna spend time litigating that either with a partner or with yourself. Because most people are like, oh my God, it's so embarrassing, I spend so much money. I'm, I don't care if you spend money on clothing. I'm just saying, at least ask yourself the question, should I keep spending this much on my clothing? Right. You get a handle on it because it's so much in the, I know it's like, again, the retirement planning space, it's always about the, the income side of the equation. And very rarely is it, you know, let's balance that on the spending side. And it does require that kind of hard scrub. So yeah. So my item that I don't miss is movie theaters. At all. <laughs> not even a little. Not even. I, okay. The only movie theater um, the only movie I have seen in a theater in the last three and a half years is West Side Story, where I was double masked and sat near nobody, but I wanted mm -hmm. to see it on a big screen. Yeah, yeah. That was so, it. So, uh, you know, now that we've done our our movie reviews, it's <laughs> we can wrap up. the The book right. is The Great Money Reset, and the author is Jill Schlesinger. Jill, great to visit with you as always. Thank you so much, and I am always delighted to talk to you, Mark. Thanks again.